It's not coherent and it's not practical. Uh, In our talk last night, uh, we tackled that first challenge uh, and my aim was to show you that, yes, it is biblical. It's there in the Bible. Uh, And we finished last night by summarizing what we saw in three statements. Uh, There is one God and the Father, Son and Spirit are each identified with the one God, but they are distinguished by the relations between them as Father, Son and Spirit. So, in this third talk, we're going to tackle that second challenge that says, it doesn't make sense. It's not coherent. Uh, And so, that is our question for this talk. Is the doctrine coherent? Uh, As we do that, let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for revealing yourself as our Father in your Son. Uh, We pray, focus our minds, soften our hearts as we come to reflect on who you are and who you have been from all eternity. Uh, We pray, please be present with us, in us now, by your Spirit, as you speak your word to us. Amen. Well, just a moment ago, we said aloud the Nicene Creed together. Um, As Christine said, uh, Christians have been saying that together since the 4th century. Uh, We're going to talk about it a little bit more throughout this talk, but I want to start by drawing your uh, attention to one line in particular. So, it's in your booklets there. One line says, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ of the same essence as the Father. Or another way of translating it is consubstantial. But let me ask you this. What do you think it actually means to say that Jesus is of the same essence as the Father? What does that actually mean? Uh, Sometimes you'll also hear the language of nature. They're of the same nature, which is kind of the same word as uh, essence, communicating the same thing. Um, Or have you heard the language of there being three persons in the Trinity? Uh, One God in three persons. Uh, That is often how we explain the Trinity, But what does it actually mean to say that God is one in essence and three in persons? How would you explain what that actually means? Well, let me remind you of what Richard Dawkins said about Jesus being consubstantial or of the same essence as the Father. We saw this in talk one. Dawkins says, Arius of Alexandria in the 4th century AD denied that Jesus was consubstantial i.e. of the same substance or essence with God. What on earth could that possibly mean? You are probably asking, substance? What substance? What exactly do you mean by essence? Very little seems the only reasonable reply. Uh, According to Dawkins, the word essence means very little at all. And so for him, the doctrine is just incoherent. It just doesn't make sense. It's a contradiction. Um, But, you know, we could add to this the other problem, we talked a little bit about this, the problem that you won't find the words essence or persons in the Bible, at least how theologians use them. Those aren't kind of words in the Bible. Um, And as we kind of said the other day, maybe you go, oh, big deal, we use non-Bible words all the time. Um, But some people will go, see, that's proof that this thing isn't biblical. Remember Adolf von Harnack? That was his thing. So, how do we respond to these problems? 
is it okay to use words that aren't in the Bible? Uh, Do they mean anything or are they incoherent? So, what do we do with words like that? Um, The first thing to say is that explaining the Bible often means using words that aren't in the Bible. To explain the Bible, sometimes you need words that aren't in the Bible. So, just think about a dictionary with me. You know when they do that really annoying thing where they use the same word in the definition? Uh, And so, the definition of imminence is to be imminent. (laughs) And you're like, thank you, that was entirely hopeless. Sometimes it's a similar thing with the Bible. Sometimes we need words that aren't in the Bible to explain what actually is in the Bible. The only question is whether it's a good explanation. Um, Is the word essence a good explanation of what's in the Bible? Is it faithful? Uh, And in a sense, these words, if they're good explanations, become little summaries of what the Bible actually teaches. Uh, So, I've got a quote there from Thomas Aquinas uh, in the 13th century. And so, he makes the point that if we can only use Bible words when explaining the Bible, then technically, we should never do anything except just quote verses to each other and only in the original languages, Greek and Hebrew. So, he says this, If we could speak of God only in the very terms themselves of Scripture it would follow that no one could speak about God in any but the original language of the Old or New Testament. The urgency of confuting heretics made it necessary to find new words to express the ancient faith about God. Uh, And so, just at the end of the quote there, he also uh, explains another reason why these words are so important. They help us explain what the Bible doesn't say. He calls it confuting heretics. Uh, And the point is, is that words like essence or person can actually help us explain what we don't believe. They're like guardrails that protect us against heresy, false teaching. Uh, That's actually how these words first started being used. Uh, Christians didn't really need these words before uh, the big heresies and false teaching came along. And it's only when people started to tweak the Trinity that they needed words to explain and clarify, no, 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 that's not what we believe. This is what we believe. Um, See, Dawkins... Dawkins wasn't the first person to ever question whether the Trinity is coherent. There have always been people that have said the Trinity doesn't make sense. Now, there are some people like Dawkins who just kind of write the whole thing off as complete nonsense. But there are some people who have tried to tweak the Trinity in an effort to help it make a bit more sense, to just kind of fix it up a bit, make it a bit more coherent at least in their eyes. And they will always go one of two ways. Either they'll overemphasize the threeness and downplay the oneness, or they'll overemphasize the oneness and downplay the threeness. Um, In talk one, we kind of called those two dangers mere monotheism and tritheism. Um, But those two dangers actually have a name. They are the two big Trinitarian heresies. So, both of them 
come from the 4th century AD. And the first is what we call Arianism, after a guy called Arius. Um, and as we'll see, Arianism is not exactly tritheism. What it does do is it overplays the threeness, downplays the oneness. It pulls the Trinity apart. That's Arianism. On the flip side is what's called modalism, sometimes called Sabellianism, after a guy called Sabellius. Uh, and modalism overplays the oneness and it loses the threeness. It just kind of flattens the Trinity out into one big blob of divinity called God. So, Arianism overplays threeness, modalism overplays oneness, and these two are the two big Trinitarian heresies, and they've stuck around since they came onto the scene in the 4th century. And both of them were born out of a desire to help the Trinity just be a little bit more coherent, to tweak it, help it make sense. But as we're going to see tonight, what they actually end up doing is ultimately sabotaging and undermining the Trinity to the point where it's no longer biblical and ultimately no longer Christian. Um, but what these heresies did is they forced Christians, um, especially in the fourth century, to think very hard about what the Bible says when it comes to the Trinity. And so they were forced to clarify, explain, what do we mean when we say this? How does this fit with that? Um, and so, in this third talk, what we're going to do is we're going to take each of these two big heresies uh, and we're going to see how Christians responded to them. Uh, and we'll kind of use the heresies as a launch pad for exploring the doctrine. So, in the first part, we're going to explore Arianism, which overplays the threeness. And what we're going to see is that Christians responded by saying, no, Father, Son and Spirit are fundamentally united. And they use the word essence to explain that unity. So, Arianism and the unity of essence, part one. Uh, and we'll explain what that means. And then in the second part, we're going to explore modalism, which overplays the oneness. And we'll see how Christians responded and said, no, Father, Son and Spirit are each distinct from one another. And we'll see how they use the word persons to explain that. Uh, and so, second part, modalism and the distinction of persons. And we'll explain what that means. And so, the aim is that we'll come away with a far deeper appreciation of who our God is, and we'll see why it's not only coherent, but also deeply biblical, uh, to believe in a God who is one in essence and three in persons. But with that said, let me introduce you to Arius of Alexandria. So, he was a pastor in the 3rd and 4th centuries. We don't know a lot about him, but we do know he was tall, he was smart, and he was attractive. Uh, but Arius had something else. He had some strange views on the Trinity. So, have a read with me what he said towards the end of the 3rd century. Heads up, this is heresy, okay? <laughs> he said... God was not always a father. Once, God was alone and not yet a father, but afterwards, He became a father. The Son was not always. He came from nothing. He is not the very, i.e. true, God. Though He is called God, 
He is not very truly God, but by participation of grace, He, as others, is God only in name. The Son, like all other created things, is unlike the Father and is alien to the Father's essence. What's he saying there? Well, what he actually believed is that Jesus wasn't God in the same way that the Father was. Uh, He was simply the first and the greatest thing that God made. And so the Son is kind of somewhere in between creation and God, somewhere in the middle. And God only became a Father when He created the Son, which means that the Son is fundamentally unlike the Father. And he used the word essence to explain that. He's alien to the Father's essence. And Arius, he actually claimed to be a Bible guy. And his key verse was from Proverbs 8. You can see it there. The Lord brought me wisdom forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was formed long ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. But Arius, he wasn't alone in his beliefs. He actually kind of became a figurehead for the movement that we now call Arianism. And their key belief was that Jesus, he's subordinate to the Father. He's unlike the Father, alien to his essence. So how did faithful Christians respond to Arius? Well, they responded by saying, no, the Son isn't unlike the Father. He's actually fundamentally united with the Father. And in particular, they said, the Son isn't alien to the Father's essence. He's actually of the same essence. But what does it actually mean to say that Jesus is of the same essence as the Father? And where did they get that from in the Bible? Well, let me introduce you to another guy called Athanasius. Like Arius, Athanasius, he was also a pastor who lived in Alexandria in the 4th century. And he kind of led the key charge against Arianism. So just to be clear, we like Athanasius. Now, I could just tell you what he said, but I actually want to show you how he used the Bible and how he got the word essence from the Bible. Uh, One of the many verses he went to was 1 Corinthians 8.6. We looked at it last night. Um, Let's read the verse. Paul says, For there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. And what Athanasius is going to point out is that if all things were made through Jesus, then there's no way that He could have been created. If Jesus had been created, which is what Arius thought, then Paul could have only said that almost all things were made through Jesus, except Him, of course. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says that whatever was made by the Father was also made through Jesus. So, have a look at how Athanasius explains it. He's talking about that verse. If all things are through Him, Jesus, He Himself is not to be reckoned with that all. For He who dares to call Him through whom are all things one of that all, surely will have like speculations concerning God, from whom are all. Such words may be used of the creatures, but as to the Son, 
He is such as the Father is, of whose essence he is proper. Now, did you notice how he used that language of essence there at the end? Saying that Jesus is proper to the Father's essence. What does that mean? What what does he mean when he says that? What he's saying is, is that there is a fundamental difference between us and Jesus. Jesus was never created. Now, the Word did become flesh in the person of Jesus. We'll talk about that tomorrow. But becoming flesh is is something different to being created. And Athanasius is saying Jesus was never created. And so there's a fundamental difference between Jesus and us. Uh, or anything else in creation. We are created, he was not. And if he is unlike us in that way, then that must mean he is like the Father, uncreated. Whatever God the Father is, that's what Jesus is as well. That's what he means when he says the Son is proper to the Father's essence. So, have a look at how one theologian explains this point that Athanasius is making. He says, Athanasius's positive statements about the divinity of the Son and Spirit are apophatic, that is, negative statements, insofar as they differentiate Son and Spirit from the created order. They're different to us. They are primarily negations of creatureliness, as applied to Son and Spirit. The Son is proper to the Father, while all of creation is external to or from outside the Father. Did you catch that? Remember what we saw yesterday with the fundamental distinction between God and the world? When push comes to shove, Arius put the Son on the world side. Now, Arius will make the point that he's kind of, he's up the top of the world, but he's ultimately unlike God. So, I've got a little diagram there. Athanasius says, no, Jesus was never created. He actually belongs with the Father on the God side of the line. He's proper to, he belongs with the Father. Now, the Son does come into the world in the person of Jesus, but he never stops being God. He never leaves the God side of the line. And there was never a time when he wasn't there. And what that means is for the Son to belong to the Father's essence. He's internal to God. Everything else is external. So, that's Arius and Athanasius. Just two pastors trying to work out who Jesus is. But that would also be to massively understate how much of a big deal this was in the 4th century. Um, This debate about who the Son is in relation to the Father, that threatened to split not only churches, but the entire Eastern Roman Empire. So much so that the Empress started noticing, going, you guys are having a big fight. So, in 325 AD, a few hundred church leaders, they got together for a council at a place called Nicaea, to work out what does the Bible actually say? What do we believe? And it was at that council that they described that Arianism was in fact unbiblical, heresy. Uh, that creed that we read out before, that comes from that council 
the Council of Nicaea. And that was what they came up with at the end. Um, and there was one little section that Arius couldn't agree to. It's there in your booklet. This is the section Arius didn't like. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. And when they said same essence, what they were really saying is that the Son wasn't created. He wasn't made. He was there before creation, existing from eternity with the Father. The Father was never without His Son. And if you're wondering where, all the, where the Spirit is in all of this, the historical reality is that this council was mostly focused on the Son, but they'd kind of say the same thing for the Spirit a little bit later. Uh, and so He too is of the same essence as the Father and the Son. But let's push a little bit deeper into what we actually mean when we say that they have the same essence. Uh, I think the best way to explain it is under two headings. Unity of attributes, they are the same thing. And unity of action, they do the same thing. They are the same thing, they do the same thing. That's what it means for them to have the same essence. So, let's explore the unity of attributes first. And when I say attributes, I'm talking about different characteristics, different qualities that God is described as having in the Bible. So, four quick examples in your booklet, just to give you an idea of what we're talking about. God is light, God is love, God is spirit, and then he says, I am holy. They're some of God's attributes, light, love, spirit, holiness, and there's heaps more that we could add. Uh, but before we talk about the Father, Son, and Spirit each having the same attributes, we first need to talk about what it actually means for God to have attributes at all. And I think if we can say a few things here, it might help us a bit later. Um, and what theologians have always emphasized is that God doesn't have attributes in the same way we do. See, uh, when it comes to humans like you or me, um, we often think about attributes or characteristics as if they were like slices of a cake. So, maybe you get a slice of assertiveness, another slice of humility, or maybe another slice of humour. And they're essentially different parts or aspects of who you are. So, you know the Myers-Briggs test? Um, I am an INTJ with 60% introversion. Um, and our attributes will sometimes change over time. Sometimes they'll be contradictory, as if we feel torn between two things. When it comes to God, the danger is that we think of Him in the same way, as if we could slice Him up into His different attributes. You know, here's His love, and here is His holiness. Or sometimes we even think of him having more of some attribute than others. You know, he's got a big slice of love, but just a, a little sliver of justice. But that's not how careful theologians have described God's attributes. Um, careful theologians have always emphasized what's known as the doctrine of simplicity. Doctrine of simplicity. 
And the doctrine of simplicity says that God is identical with each of His attributes. Love isn't just something God has. Love is what He is. Whatever God has is what He is. It's not just part of Him. There's no parts or variations in God. He is pure love. And there is nothing in Him other than love. He's also pure holiness. And there's nothing in Him that isn't holy. Which means that He isn't one thing more than another thing. There's no greater or lesser with God. There is nothing in God other than God. And everything He is, He is through and through. He's entirely love, entirely light, entirely holy. That's who He is. That's what we mean when we say God is simple. Have a look at how Oregon of Alexandria explains this. He says, God admits within himself no addition of any kind, so that he cannot be believed to have within him a greater and a less, lest the simplicity of the divine nature should appear to be found composite and differing. There's no addition, no greater, no lesser, no composite, no difference. Pure, simple God. And one of the key verses that uh, theologians like Oregon went to was Exodus 3. It says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Did you catch that? God is who He is. Or to put it differently, whatever God has is what He is. Is He loving? He is love. And what's more, there's no change, there's no development with God. Have a look at James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What He is, He is eternally, unchangingly. Now, what does all that mean? It means that all of these different attributes are really just different ways of talking about God's essence. His essence is love, which is the same as His holiness, which is the same as His light. They are descriptions of who God is. And although we talk about these attributes as if they were different, um, what we're doing is we're just turning around the same diamond, catching different angles of the light. And so when we say that the Son is of the same essence as the Father, what we're saying is that whatever the Father has, the Son has as well. Whatever the Father is, the Son is too. Is the Father love? So is the Son. Is the Father light? So is the Son. We could say the same thing for the Spirit. It's not as if Jesus is love and God is justice. No. Uh, one of the key Bible verses where you see this is in John 5. Uh, Jesus says, As the Father has life in Himself, so He is granted to the Son also to have life in Himself. Did you catch that? Both the Father and the Son have life in themselves. 
They have exactly the same thing. The Son doesn't have life from the Father. He has life in Himself. They don't just have life, though. They are life. Do you remember what Jesus says? I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Father, Son, and Spirit are the same thing. Life, love, holiness. And that's what we mean when we say that they are of the same essence. They are the same thing. Now, if I have just lost you uh, or you tuned out, tune back in because I'll tell you why this unity of attributes matters for your salvation. Uh, Your salvation depends upon it. Here's why. If Jesus is not absolutely identical in attributes with the Father then he hasn't really revealed God to us. We don't really know God, which means we're not really saved. Have a look at what Athanasius says. The Father is eternal, immortal, powerful, light, king, sovereign, God, Lord, creator, and maker. These attributes must be in the image, he's talking about Jesus, to make it true that um, he that has seen the Son has seen the Father. That's big. Jesus is and has everything that the Father is and has. And because we know Jesus, we know God. That's unity of attributes. But what about unity of action? Well, in the same way that these three are all the same thing, they also do the same thing. Have a look at what Scott Swain says. He says, God's transcendent oneness not only shapes our understanding of God's being, that's his essence, it also shapes our understanding of God's works. Because of divine simplicity, the eternal works of the triune God are not parceled out among the persons, with each person perhaps doing his share to contribute to a larger whole, the external works of the triune God are indivisible. All of God's works, from creation to consummation, are the works of the three persons enacting one divine power, ordered by one divine wisdom, expressing one divine goodness, and manifesting one divine glory. What's he saying there? He's saying that all three, Father, Son, and Spirit, are each active in every work of God. In everything that God does, the Father, Son, and Spirit are all there working. None of them kind of sits around while the others do something. Just think back to what we saw in creation yesterday. All three were present there in the act of creation. Uh, Psalm 33, 6, we looked at it. It says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the Spirit uh, all their host. All three were there creating together. Or just think about salvation. Who saves you? It's all three. The Father saves us, the Son saves us, and the Spirit saves us. Or even revelation As we'll see later this week, each of them are there in the act of revelation, revealing God to us. Uh, This is actually what's known as the doctrine of inseparable operations. 
uh, Augustine. He's kind of one of the most well-known theologians for making the point. And this is what he says. The Trinity works indivisibly in everything that God works. Now, Augustine, he goes on and he says, yeah, okay, this is a bit of a mind bender. How is it that none of the three do something without the other two? Uh, And it's worth seeing where we actually see this in the Bible. Where's this in the Bible? One of the key places is John 5. So, context, Jesus has just healed a man on the Sabbath, and then he's questioned about it, and then this is what happens. Jesus said to them, My Father is always at His work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill Him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Did you catch what he says there? Whatever the Father does, the Son does also. And the Son does nothing by Himself. Wherever the Father is at work, the Son is too. And in verse 18, the author John, he makes the point that uh, if Jesus does what what the Father does, then He makes Himself equal to God. That's what we mean when we say that the Son is of the same essence as the Father. Uh, He does what the Father does and neither does anything by himself. Uh, We could say the same thing for the Spirit. He is there present in all of God's works. Uh, Paul says that we have been both justified and sanctified by the Spirit. You can see that there, 1 Corinthians 6. Um, Can you see, this is more than just cooperation. It's more than just division of labour. They're not a team working on the same project, and they don't just divide up different bits of the work. I don't know if at uni you do like a team project. It's never equal anyway, is it? <laughs> uh, it's not teamwork. It's complete unity of action. It's not like a living with someone, you know, you take the bins out, I'll do the washing up. Uh, it's not like that. Um, that's what we mean when we say that they are of the same essence. They are the same thing, and they do the same thing. They are one. That's what we mean when we say that there is one God. All right. Let's have a quick discussion question, quick break. Uh, I've got a question for you. Here's a curly one. If the Father, Son, and Spirit all do the same thing, then how do we make sense of Jesus' baptism, where the Holy Spirit comes down in a dove and the voice of the Father comes from the heavens? What's going on there? What do you reckon? Take a moment, have a chat, and then we'll come back. All right. Let's bring it back. Sorry, that was probably a pretty curly question. Um, All right, so far. So far we've looked at Arianism, which separated the Father from the Son. And we've seen how someone like Athanasius and the Council of Nicaea, they say, no, no. The Son isn't separate from the Father. He is the same thing as the Father in terms of attributes, and He does the same thing as the Father in terms of works, and the same for the Spirit. 
And the word they used to describe this unity was that they are of the same essence. That's God's oneness. But, and it's a big but, it's also possible to overemphasize God's oneness and to lose the threeness. And this is actually what happened after the Council of Nicaea. Uh, so some people, they pushed so hard against Arianism that they actually went all the way over into what we call modalism, which flattens out any distinction. Uh, one of those guys was called Marcellus of Ancyra. Uh, some people said, you're just being like Sibelius. So it's sometimes called Sibelianism, uh, if you're Googling it. Um, so key idea of modalism is that there's really only one God who just appears in different ways, almost like one actor who puts on different masks. Sometimes it's the father mask, sometimes it's the son mask. Uh, but in the end, it's really just one God behind it all. So have a look at how Scott Swain explains modalism. He says, according to modalism, the three persons of the Trinity have no real and distinct existence apart from God's interaction with the world. The three persons are merely different modes of God's interaction with the world. Divine emanations that come into existence to accomplish God's work in the world and then cease to exist when God's work in the world is completed. That's what modalism is. Um, but here is where we run, run into a pretty major complexity. It's the complexity of eternity. See, modalism, it doesn't just say no to any distinctions in God. It actually says something far more slippery, something far more sinister. Um, have a look again at the first line of that Scott Swain, quote, uh, Scott Swain quote. He says, according to modalism, the three persons of the Trinity have no real and distinct existence apart from God's interaction with the world. Did you catch that? Modalism says there are distinctions within God, but only in His interaction with the world. But before the creation, there were no distinctions which means that there was no Father, no Son, no Spirit before creation. There was simply an undefined blob of divinity called God. And God only appears as Father, Son and Spirit in creation. But that's not what He is from eternity. Those distinctions don't extend into eternity. Uh, so I've tried to capture that there with a the little diagram. Uh, that's modalism. Um, but it could be that you're listening to this and all of this just sounds super abstract. Um, and you're wondering, why on earth does this matter? Your salvation depends upon getting this right. If God isn't the same in eternity as He is in creation, we don't really know God. It's all a facade. And He's actually something entirely different to who, he thinks, who, who we think He is. It's all a lie. We call Him Father but he's not actually Father. We don't actually know who God is. I've got a quote there from T.F. Torrance. All right, this, I think, is the most mind-bending quote of all the talks. So here we go. I think it's pure gold, though. He says, The historical manifestations of God 
as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have evangelical and theological significance only as they have a trans-historical and trans-finite reference beyond to an ultimate ground in God Himself. They cannot be gospel if their reference breaks off at the finite boundaries of this world of space and time. For as such, they would be empty of divine validity and saving significance. The historical manifestations of the Trinity are gospel, however, if they are grounded beyond history in the eternal personal distinctions between the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit inherent in the Godhead. In the Gospel, God does not just appear to us to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for He really is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Himself and reveals Himself as such. What's the point? If there, if there are distinctions between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in creation then those distinctions also must be reflected in God's eternal existence. Otherwise, we don't know God and we aren't saved. I've got a little diagram that tries to capture some of this. If you're wondering why I've used dashes in eternity, that's simply because God is never limited by creation. He's infinitely more than we could ever grasp or imagine. But at the same time, those distinctions we see in creation must also be infinitely and eternally reflected in who God is, in His existence. Otherwise, we don't know God. Phew. Breathe. <laughs> Let me ask you this. If the Father, Son and Spirit are all of the same essence, which means they are the same thing and do the same thing, then what separates them? from one another? What distinguishes each of them from the others? Uh, or another way of putting it is this, is there anything that's only true of the Son? Is there anything that's only true of the Spirit? As we've just talked about, um, if there is any difference between them in creation, then we not only can, we have to read those distinctions back up into God's eternal existence. So let's start with Jesus. Because in Jesus, we find something that is only true of the Son and not true of the Father or the Spirit. Only the Son became a man. Only He took on flesh. Have a look at what Karl Rahn says. Jesus is not simply God in general, but the Son, the second divine person, God's Logos word, is man. And only He is man. But we can actually go further than just saying that only the Son became man. Because what we see in Jesus is that He always relates to the Father a certain way. And the Father always relates to Jesus a certain way. And what we see is that everything Jesus is, everything Jesus says and does, is from the Father. There is a relationship of fromness 
that fundamentally shapes how Jesus relates to his Father. He is from the Father. Uh, You can see that there in the fact that Jesus is sent from the Father to come into the world. John 16, I came from the Father and have come into the world. The Son doesn't send the Father. The Father sends the Son. And the Son is from the Father. But it's more than just the fact that Jesus is sent by the Father into the world. This relationship of fromness actually defines everything Jesus is, has, and does. So, have a look at the verse we looked at before. So, John 5, we looked at it before, but have a look again. As the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Did you notice that there's a definite relationship going on? The Father and Son, they have exactly the same thing, life in themselves. But the Son has life in Himself from the Father. The Father grants it to Him. And that relationship isn't reversible. It wouldn't be right to say that the Son grants the Father to have life in Himself. There's an asymmetricality there. It's a relationship of a Father to a Son. Everything the Son has, He has from the Father. But that doesn't just shape everything Jesus has, it shapes everything He does. Have a look at that same verse we looked at from before again, but notice the relationship of fromness. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The Father and Son have and do the same thing, But everything the Son has and does, He has and does from the Father. Have a look at um, how Scott Swain explains this. I think it's super helpful. He says, What distinguishes the Father from the Son is not what they have. What distinguishes the Father from the Son is their distinct personal modes of having what they have. The person of the Father has life in Himself, from Himself, The person of the Son has life in Himself from the Father. And as we've already said, this relationship of fromness, it can't just be something that happens in creation. It actually has to be an eternal relationship of fromness. This is what we call eternal begetting. So you remember back to that Nicene Creed that we said earlier? Begetting is how they talked about this relationship of fromness. Have a look there. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father. The Son is and has everything from the Father. And that's what we call eternal begetting. And that's the only difference between the Father and the Son. Um, Have a look at what a theologian called Tertullian said. It's quite helpful. The Father is distinct from the Son inasmuch as He who begets is one and He who is begotten is another. The difference between them is how they relate to each other. Their relations. And we can say the same thing about the Spirit. 
Have a look at John 15. Um, as we do, try and look out for the language of fromness. But this time, have a look. The Spirit is both sent from the Father and is also sent by the Son. Jesus says, uh, when the Helper comes, the Spirit, uh, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Spirit is both from the Father and also from the Son, which means that everything the Spirit is and does, he has from both the Father and the Son. Uh, have a look at John 16. Notice the language of having and taking. Jesus says, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that He, the Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. Can you see the relationship? Everything the Spirit has is from the Son, and everything the Son has is from the Father. They have the same thing, but not in the same way. The Spirit's relation isn't the same as being begotten, that would actually mean that there are two sons, brothers. <laughs> Theologians have described the Spirit as proceeding. And you actually see that there. It's the language of the Bible, John 15. It says the Spirit proceeds from the Father. Just like eternal begetting for the Son, we say that there's an eternal proceeding for the Spirit. And these relations of begetting and proceeding are the thing that distinguishes the Father from the Son and the Son from the Spirit. They're the eternal relations of origin. They have and do the same thing, but not in the same way. And this brings us to the language of persons. Because the Father, Son and Spirit, they're not just like relationships, as in the relations are the things between them. There is actually one who begets. There is one who is begotten, and they are the three. And throughout the centuries, Christian theologians have re referred to these three as persons. They are the ones who do the relating, and their names are the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Um, have a look at how Thomas Aquinas defines what a person is. This is perhaps the most well-known definition in theology. Distinction in God is only by relation of origin. A divine person signifies a relation as subsisting, having concrete existence, one who does the relating. That's what he's saying. Uh, he's saying there's not just relations, there's one who relates. And that's that weird word, subsisting. We don't use it anymore. All right. But there's a problem here. Uh, because the language of person is actually really unhelpful. Here's why. When we hear the word person, we actually have a whole bunch of assumptions about what it means to be a person. Uh, and what we end up doing is we often end up assuming that there are three different people uh, with three different, you know, Three different minds, three different wills, which is not at all what the theologians meant when they said persons. Um, remember, they don't have different things. They have the same thing, just in different ways that reflect their relations. They have the same will, but not in the same way. The son has the same will as the father, but he has it from the father. So, 
That's uh, why we say there are three persons in the Trinity, not three people. Um, Have a look at what Karl Barth says. He says, Person, as used in the church doctrine of the Trinity, bears no direct relation to personality. The meaning of the doctrine is not then that there are three personalities in God. In it, we are speaking not of three divine eyes, uh, but thrice of one divine eye. Um, Now, you could be hearing all this kind of going, okay, why do we keep using the word then, if it's that unhelpful? Why don't we just ditch it and pick a different word? Um, Here's why. Because we have to say something. And it's basically the best we've got. Um, our language starts to break when we describe our God, because He's wonderful. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't say something. Have a look at what Augustine says. He says, We say three persons, not in order to say that precisely, but in order not to be reduced to silence. So, when we say that there are three persons in the Trinity, all we're saying is that the one named the Son has everything that the Father has, except He has it from the Father. And the one named the Spirit has everything that the Father and Son do, except He has it from the Father through the Spirit. Their relations are what distinguish them. Now, all of this could still just sound super abstract, um, because stick with me, I think things might start to fall into place when we talk about how do these distinctions play out when it comes to God's action, His works? How are God's actions shaped by His relations as Father, Son and Spirit? Uh, Let me remind you of what we saw earlier. All three of them are active in all of God's works. None of them just sits on the couch while the other two do something. They work indivisibly. But that doesn't mean they do the same thing in the same way. They actually complete the same act in a way that reflects their relations. So, have a look at what our faithful guide, Scott Swain, says. He's very helpful. As God's being is simple and indivisible, so His works are undivided and inseparable. As three distinct persons eternally exist within God's simple, indivisible being... So there is a threefold order of operation within God's undivided, inseparable works. God's external actions proceed from the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit. Did you catch what he says? There's a threefold shape to God's undivided works. And we can use some language to describe that from the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit. And that is actually the language of the Bible. So, have a look again at 1 Corinthians 8. This time, look out for those words from and through. For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. Now, Paul doesn't specifically mention the Spirit here, but in a place like Ephesians 1, he'll use the word in to describe the work of the Spirit. And what these words are getting at 
is that God's relations, the way he relates within himself, they're reflected in his works, what he does. The Father is in one sense the originating agent and the Son is the mediating agent through and the Spirit is the finishing agent in the Spirit. Uh, And the acts of creation, salvation, revelation, they're all done from the Father through the Son and in the Spirit. And that's the language of the Bible. But there's one final complexity, one mind, one final mind bender. It's the very last thing we're going to talk about before we wrap this talk up. The final complexity is this. Sometimes the Bible will associate a particular work with one particular person of the Trinity as if one work belonged to each one. So sometimes the Bible will describe the Father in particular as the Creator. It'll call the Father the Creator. That's what the Creed does. Or it'll specifically describe the Son as the Saviour, or the Spirit as the Sanctifier, the Cleanser. What's going on there? Well, have a listen once more to Scott Swain. Scripture specially identifies distinct persons of the Trinity with distinct works of the Trinity because certain works more specially manifest certain persons of the Trinity. What on earth is he saying there? What he's saying is that some works of God are more reflective of one of the persons than the others. In some sense, some works are more aligned with one person than the others. Let me explain what I mean. So, we've already established that the Son and the Spirit are from the Father, which means that, in some sense, the Father is the originator. And because creation is an act of origination, the Bible will call the Father the Creator. That's not to say that the Son and the Spirit that they're not there in the act of creation. All we're saying is that the act of creation particularly highlights who the Father is in relation to the Son and the Spirit. Or think of the Spirit. He is the one who has everything from both the Father and the Son. And so it's appropriate that the Spirit is the one who takes the salvation of Jesus on the cross and applies it to us. He's the finisher. And all of this is what we call the doctrine of appropriation. Appropriation. And we call it that because some of the Trinity's undivided works are more appropriate to one more than the others. And it's important to know this isn't arbitrary. Their appropriations reflect their relations as Father, Son and Spirit. And this is what the Nicene Creed does. This is actually what we just said. Did you notice it identified the Father as the Creator, the Son as the Saviour, and the Spirit as the Giver of life? We aren't saying that only the Father creates. All we're saying is that this work particularly reflects who the Father is. Now, it could be that you're sitting there wondering, why doesn't the Bible just pick one way of speaking and just stick to it? Please be consistent. Either just say that the Father created us through the Son and in the Spirit, and that He saves us through the Son and in the Spirit, and He gives us life through the Son and in the Spirit. Or, 
please just say that the Father made us, the Son saves us, and the Spirit gives us life. Why does it have these different ways of speaking just to complicate things for us? Is it because the Trinity is actually incoherent after all? No. Here's why. The Bible uses all these different ways of speaking to protect us from overly simplistic ways of talking about our God. It uses different ways of speaking to protect us from either overemphasizing the oneness or overemphasizing the threeness. As soon as we think we see the one, we're taken back to the three. And as soon as we see the three, we're taken back to the one. Let me close. Uh, we started by pointing out that any desire to tweak the Trinity and help it make a bit more sense will actually either end up overstating the oneness or the threeness, and they have disastrous consequences. Uh, first, we explored Arianism, overplays the threeness, and we saw how faithful Christians responded and said, God's actually one in essence, which means the Father and the Son, they not only are the same thing, they do the same thing. But we looked at modalism, which overplays the oneness. And we saw how Christians responded and said, no, the thing that distinguishes the Father, Son and Spirit is that they have and do the same things, but not in the same way. Uh, they do it in a way that reflects their relations. And we described them as being three persons, but not three people. And when we hold these things together, we can actually come to a deeper appre appreciation for why it's not only coherent, it's also deeply biblical to believe in a God who is one in essence, three in persons. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are glorious and you are mighty and your ways are beyond us. And yet you have graciously revealed yourself in your Son and by your Spirit. You have shown us who you are and you have proven your love, your holiness and your light in the death of your Son. Father, we praise uh, you that you are our Father and we ask that we might know you uh, even as we are known by you. Uh, we pray it in your son's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.